0: Morning to rising. We're throwing shade and getting our show started. <laughs> Brianna, what's going on?
1: Well, we have a really fantastic show for you. News Nation's Kelsey Kernstein discusses the release of Annan Said. Friends of the show, Max Alvarez, and Ron Kamenkow weigh in on whether a rail strike has actually been averted or not. And Rafael Bernal will be here to discuss key issues for Hispanic voters. But first, authorities in Texas have opened a criminal investigation into Governor Ron DeSantis after the Florida governor flew nearly 50 Venezuelan migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Bexar County Sheriff Javier Salazar said his office is investigating whether the migrants were a victim of a crime, saying they were lured under false pretenses. Here's Salazar during a press conference yesterday.
0: What infuriates me the most about this case is that here we have 48 people that are already on on hard times, uh, right? They are here legally in our country at that point. They have every right to be where they are. And I believe that they were preyed upon. Somebody came from out of state, preyed upon these people, um, lured them with promises of of a better life, which is what they were absolutely looking for, with the knowledge that they were going to cling to whatever hope they could, they could be offered for a better life, uh, to just be uh, exploited, and uh, hoodwinked into making this trip to Florida and then onward to Martha's Vineyard for what I believe to be nothing more than political posturing uh, to make a point. Though Salazar blasted the political theatrics, he did not single out DeSantis during the press conference. Senior Florida officials told reporters that all the migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard were sleeping on streets at the border in Texas, went voluntarily and were given hotels showers etc beforehand they said some migrants even chose to stay behind and journalist Judd legum reports uh, that one of the planes used in the martha's vineyard stunt is currently scheduled to travel from san antonio to florida to a small airport near biden's home in delaware today so look you want to investigate it fine investigate it i don 't have any problem with that, um, if there was some wrongdoing, but like the officer said, they are here legally because they 're seeking asylum mm-hmm. and until their asylum cases are adjudicated they 're allowed to be here and Here is the entire country, mm-hmm. not just texas or florida they 're like allowed to go wherever they want, so really, the only question is you know were they actually lured under false pretenses, were they lied to about where they were going that I, I guess it could theoretically be some kind of Kidnapping issue, mm-hmm. but uh, but you know some of them were interviewed in Martha's Vineyard, and they didn't seem particularly perturbed about where they had ended up. So it's fine to investigate it. And, and again, I, I think and I agree that it is a political stunt, to be clear. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing illegal about transporting people who are here legally from one state to another, and they, and there's and also there is no there should be no reason to presume that they are going to necessarily stay in. In Texas or in whatever border towns they cross into, like they they are, they might have family elsewhere. They might travel. Like they're not. There's there's no. They don't just stay there because they have to or something. They don't have to.
1: Sure, but I think this is where some of the conservative messaging is getting bungled. If you're if you're the what you were trying to expose with this stunt is that you think that border states, which are disproportionately conservative, perhaps all conservative, are bearing the burden of immigration policies that the left. Supports the liberal support, but don't want to pony up resources for, then flying them somewhere else, and then claiming that they have they were they were well supported when they got there, and so it's not a big deal doesn't really gel with the story. The whole point was to say, we're going to drop them in Martha's Vineyard, where all the elites are. And the elites are going to reject them. And they're going to have a terrible time. And this is why we're doing it. If your argument now is, oh, well, they're legal. And they're allowed to travel. And actually, it was fine. And they got showers. And everything was nice and very comfortable for them when they got to Martha's Vineyard. Then what were you trying to expose about sitting then to Martha's Vineyard? What point were you trying to make about the inconsistencies in liberal hospitality? or liberals' willingness to support the social programs that you say they support. Now, there's a bigger story here and a bigger conversation that should be had about what exactly is about Biden's immigration policy that is being objected to, because largely he's kept Trump's policies in place, much to the chagrin of many people on the actual left. And I would prefer us to be having a substantive conversation about what reforms Republicans do want, since they claim to want to have the American dream, want to have a pathway to citizenship, but there's not a substantive conversation happening about what alternative to the asylum system and the backlog that we're now experiencing that resulted in these people sleeping on the the border, what they're uh, uh, proposing in the alternative. Uh,
0: here's an easy tweak to this. We could if we're just if we're leaving the system in place we might as well allow these people who are going to be here for years until their asylum cases are adjudicated because the system is so backlogged and because the asylum process is a kind of de facto amnesty, because these people are claiming that, and then it's going to be years before the claim is even heard, mm-hmm. um, they should be able to work here in that time mm-hmm. and pay taxes. That would seem like a just automatic improvement that everyone should be able to get behind. Yeah. They they say they want to come here and work, and then they have difficulty working uh, because of their legal status. Absolutely. They have to do a lot of jobs that are just cash-based. Or, um, sometimes they find employment, but their employers could get in trouble maybe for, and for employing And they're often
1: them. exploited because they're having to be paid under the table. Their wages, their promised wages that never... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah are given over and all those kinds of things. And that, and and
0: right, so from a left perspective, that's abusive and should be fixed. But even from a conservative standpoint, to to get Republicans on board who say you're concerned that there's somehow, you know, a drag on the social safety net or they're taking advantage of programs and not paying into it, okay, then let them work and then they'll pay taxes and then they're not, and then that addresses that criticism. So it would be like an easy, just straightforward improvement to the system that I would think everyone should get behind. And
1: to the extent that there's an argument that they are driving down wages because they will work for less making them work sure. on the books instead of under the table Absolutely. is a solution to that as well. Well, the media, of course, was all over the story as it became a sticking point on immigration. Over on MSNBC, Ellie Mistel gave his point of view on the matter. Let's take a look.
2: We have reports that they were lied to, that they were tricked, that they were induced with false promises um, to get on planes and then ship someplace where they weren't told where they were going. That to me is a violation of the federal kidnapping statutes. The legal term of art is inveigling. As I you know, as I think most people can kind of their horse sense can kind of understand. If I roll down and find a bunch of teenagers and I say, Look, kids, hop in my van, I'm gonna take you to Disney World, and I take them to Busch Gardens. <laughs> You know, and I take him to, to old Williamsburg, that's kidnapping. I didn't take the kids where I said I was going to take the kids, right? So I think that in yeah. this case, Ron DeSantis told these people, including children, that we take them to one place, Boston, which would have services where they would get expedited work pieces, yeah. where they would be have housing, and then send them to a different place. That is kidnapping. And the person that we need to understand that is, unfortunately, at this point, not Ron DeSantis, not Greg Abbott. We need yeah. Merrick Garland. Once again, to understand that and bring the full weight of the and... federal government down on these people.
0: I'm not sure it's actually even kidnapping to do, like if you hold someone against their will and take, like you don't let them leave, I, I don't know. That that seemed like a little bit of a yeah. Stretch. I mean,
1: there there are it can be there bad are kind without of constructive kidnapping cases <laughs> like that. Um, I, I think that you know the lawyers there's an investigation, so the lawyers will decide what this actually amounts to. I don't know why the Bush Gardens slander had to be in there. <laughs> I don't know what Bush Gardens ever did to LA. Mistel. some of us really enjoyed that as a vacation destination as children. But uh, we got a different take altogether from Charlemagne the God. Let's take a listen to that
3: i personally think it's genius but i wish that governors like ron desantis and greg abbott would give democratic governors and mayors more of a heads up because then that would expose the hypocrisy of the democrats which is they don't want immigrants here either for months republican governors have sent busloads of
1: Yeah, so you saw the looks on the faces of his guests. It was Malcolm Gladwell and Angela Rye there, two, you know, liberal uh, commentators. I I thought that was Gladwell. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's unexpected for some people to hear, you know, a black man who's presumed to be kind of a mainstream Democrat take that kind of position. But I actually do think there's a significant portion of black Americans who are frustrated that sometimes the immigration discussion and the discussion about whether or not wages are being driven down at the bottom sliver, at least of the workforce, you know, there's not enough attention to whether or not they in particular are being undercut there. And so I'm not especially surprised that Charlamagne Tha God has this take. Uh, What what do you make of it?
0: Yeah, uh, I know I take his point. Look, I think... um, I don't know what your impression is. It seems from watching this story unfold and the way the media talks about it, obviously it's one of those you know, scissor tests where everyone on one side of the issue thinks, oh my God, it's so insane that Republicans did this. They're so heartless there. How could they do this? This makes me even more emboldened as a Democrat or to support Democrats. And then Republicans do the exact opposite thing. So it's kind of hard to, like, who won the narrative, which is an annoying conversation anyway. But I, I, I think kind of Republicans won this narrative, but it yeah. seems like there's more. They, they made um, given the reaction from some, not everyone, but some of the people in Martha's Vineyard, you saw some of those videos. Uh, there was that, MS, we played it on the show yesterday, was a, that MSNBC video of a reporter saying, like, actually, the migrants sound very grateful to be here in America. And it was well, yes, but that was, that was never
1: the, the issue. The issue was whether or not they are being best served in Martha's Vineyard. I think this was the part that didn't get discussed enough. Cities like Boston, larger yeah. cities and border towns, they have the resources to accept immigrants because they're typically in that position. Putting them in a place where immigrants don't typically go where there are not the local resources to actually accommodate them, house them, have lawyers that can process their claims, it hurts the human beings involved who are here legally looking for asylum. So if you actually had an interest in human beings and had a humanist approach to this whole issue, regardless of what you think of it politically, you just simply wouldn't do that. And I think that's where conservatives uh, made a misstep here. They didn't just fly them to a city like Boston or New York that had more resources. They, they chose to make an entire stunt out of it. It wasn't about Democrats and democratic cities it was about making a point that came actually at the expense of the 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 families and children involved here Mm -hmm. Uh, but you let us know what you think about it in the comments and we will hear more from Robbie and find out what's on his radar next Robbie Suave, what's on your radar today?
0: Can't wait to tell you. (laughs) Well, on Sunday, President Biden made an important declaration and one I've been waiting years for. He said this.
2: Mr. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over?
4: The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, It's but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it.
0: Did you get that? The pandemic is over. That's the official word from the president of the United States. Biden acknowledged that COVID-19, it's not gone, might not ever go away, frankly. We'll still be dealing with it in some form, probably for years to come. But vaccines that drastically reduce the likelihood of severe disease and death are available for everybody who wants one. And we have booster shots for those who want extra protection, like the elderly and the immunocompromised, and really anyone else uh, who wants to take that route. People who want to be even more cautious can wear KN95 masks, which scientists believe filter out the vast majority of pathogenic particles. Cumulatively, these disease prevention measures make COVID a far less pressing problem. Moreover, these measures can be implemented voluntarily. Yes, it's true that roughly 400 people who have COVID are unfortunately still dying every day in the U.S. But if you look at the age-adjusted risk, which is what this chart shows, you can see that vaccinated and boosted elderly Americans are having much better outcomes. This means you largely have control over your COVID fate. You can decide based on available evidence or even a consultation with a doctor what's right for you. It's your choice whether to get vaccinated, get a booster, or wear a mask. The public health rationale for the government to require various measures like vaccine passports, mask mandates, social distancing, lockdowns, school closures, etc., that has come to an end. It's great to hear Biden finally acknowledge it. But here's a question I have. If the pandemic is over, as Biden admits, then why is the federal government still operating with the emergency powers granted to it during a national crisis? So according to Reuters, the public health emergency, which was declared former by former President Donald Trump in early 2020, it's still in effect, and the administration fully intends to renew it come October. The current plan is for the Department of Health and Human Services to let the emergency expire early next year in January 2023. If Biden says the pandemic is over, well, then the emergency authority he has claimed for himself should already have come to an end. And that matters, by the way, because Biden has used his emergency authority in very significant ways. Most notably, recently, you may recall, he used it to forgive hundreds of billions of dollars in student loan debt. Yes, that action was actually undertaken in accordance with emergency COVID powers. Let me explain. In 2003, Congress passed the HEROES Act, which is an acronym for Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students. The law, quote, permits the Secretary of Education to waive or modify federal student financial assistance program requirements to help students and their families or academic institutions affected by a war, other military operation, or national emergency. So the clear intention of the law, in my view, was to delay or modify student loan repayment plans for Americans who were serving in combat operations, not for anyone who just happened to have student loans in the middle of the pandemic. Now, even House Speaker Nancy Pelosi didn't think Biden had the authority to cancel student loan debt under that law. Quote, not everybody realizes that, but the president can only postpone, delay, but not forgive student loans, she said in June, 2021. It would take an act of Congress, not an executive order, to cancel student loan debt. Pelosi obviously changed her tune subsequently. A few weeks ago, President Biden went ahead and canceled student loan debt anyway. His plan allows borrowers under a certain income threshold to have up to $20,000 forgiven. His plan also creates incentives for borrowers to move toward income-driven repayment, or IDR, which means that instead of paying back their loans, they would pay back a percentage of their income for a decade, which in most cases will be a far better deal for them than repaying the actual loan. I previously warned that unless the government also forbids universities to raise prices beyond a certain point, the likely outcome will be skyrocketing tuition rates because students will have more incentive to borrow heavily and the educational institutions will be wholly unconstrained in terms of what they're charging. Taxpayers are footing the bill, not the students. In a recent report for the Brookings Institute, senior fellow Adam Looney found that the damage done by Biden's IDR program will essentially be catastrophic. He writes that, quote, there are several dimensions in which it is likely to have significant, unanticipated negative effects. These include increased rates of borrowing and the fact that low quality, low value, low earning programs are essentially receiving a subsidy. He fears that, quote, with regards to overall college costs, institutions will have an incentive to create valueless programs and aggressively recruit students into those programs with promises they will be free under an IDR plan. This is bad, 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 bad. And to be clear, the legal justification for this was dubious and debatable to begin with. But now the justification doesn't exist at all. Biden admits the national emergency has passed. The pandemic is over. If it's over, he really, really doesn't have the authority to do this. And as National Review's Charles C.W. Cook noted in a recent piece, the Biden administration has already conceded that if it ever had such authority, that time is over. In May, the administration ceased using its Title 42 powers to expel immigrants based on COVID fears. In its memo announcing that the time for Title 42 powers had passed, the Department of Justice wrote, quote, the CDC has now determined in its expert opinion that continued reliance on this authority is no longer warranted in light of the current public health circumstances. If it was true in May, it's truer now. The only difference between the federal government's emergency Title 42 powers and its emergency student loan deferment powers is that Biden didn't really wanna keep using the former, but he does wanna keep using the latter. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. The end of the COVID national emergency means it is now crystal clear the president cannot unilaterally forgive billions of dollars of student debt without an act of Congress. Now I know, Brianna, you and I disagree on the underlying policy, but what do you think about my argument that if he's saying the pandemic is over and that was the justification being used, one I'm not frankly sure was legal in the first place, uh, you know? but what do you think about that?
1: So it was the subject of my radar last week, yeah. where, you know, I had a Fordham law professor named Jed Sugarman on my show uh, on Bad Faith Podcast to discuss this. And, you know, the our, the issue wasn't whether or not he has the legal authority to cancel student debt. He absolutely does. It's the same legal authority that was used to postpone the debt payments by Donald Trump, and which is a moratorium that persists to this date. The question is whether or not he is choosing the right authority to, u- to use as a hook for his executive action. and what Jed and some other people have been arguing. Potentially, it's true that the Joe Biden intentionally chose the HEROES Act instead of the much more credible Higher Education Act of 1965, wh- whose language is exactly on point and has nothing to do with national emergencies. It has to do with resolving education emergencies, which no one can dispute we exist in. Um, with the skyrocketing costs of colleges, et cetera, as you described. And then the question is, did Joe Biden intentionally choose to use the HEROES Act over the Higher Education Act? Because he frankly doesn't want to cancel student mm. debt. So whereas you are kind of framing this as, you know, Joe Biden is trying to overreach his authority, I think that it's very likely that Joe Biden very well knows what he's doing, had no intention of actually canceling student debt for anybody. You kind of framed it as a policy that's already come to fruition. It absolutely has not. And we'll see if it actually does or if it's just an inducement to get Democrats to the polls Uh, in the the fall, while Biden still aligns with the Hmm. corporatists that have lobbied him aggressively not to do full debt cancellation or even meet the full cancellation promises that he himself made during the course of the primary. But won't the
0: blowback—I see what you're saying, but won't the blowback for him if this this is struck down or prevented by some court in some future— Uh, that he failed to, that he tried to do this. Won't that look so bad for him among people like yourself? Yeah. Um, People will just be (laughs) furious. People like
1: myself. I mean, you're not happy anyway, but you know what I mean.
0: (laughs) But yeah, this is the
1: point that Professor Sugarman was making, that this is something that could get struck down, not just you know, by the conservative justices, but this could be a unanimous decision potentially. Mm -hmm. And he points to uh, Justice Kagan in particular's administrative law decisions in the past. Apparently that is her wheelhouse of sorts. Uh, And says that this is something that if she is consistent in her rulings, she is very likely to strike down because Biden in the Department of Education just chose the wrong statute. Now, I, I do think, and what Judge Sugarman was arguing is that they could simply change course. There's there's been no legal challenge at this point. The part problem has uh, the um, p- sorry policy hasn't actually gone into an effect. And if there's enough social pressure on them, public pressure for them to actually structure this in the right way, there's no reason why he has to ha- hang this on COVID. But one last point I do also want to make about your radar is that I think one of the 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 pro- most problematic aspects of him de- declaring COVID is over. I think you're right about the calculation having shifted given the lack, the less, the less, um, the less uh, uh, lethal nature of the virus, the more transmissible nature of this new variant and all of these other kinds of things. But what is, what gives me pause is whether or not declaring COVID is over was, uh, will allow him to re- withdraw what social supports he has given to people who are struggling through this pandemic. So if COVID being over it means no more mandates, fine, the mandate's already gone, but is it gonna mean and we know this is true, no longer paying for vaccines, no longer paying for treatment. Kamala Harris, during the primary, made a big fuss of saying, how is it ethical for us to be going through this and having people going bankrupt because they get COVID? How, how, you know, we got to support people. Well, a lot of us on the left pointed out that that logic extends to any number of diseases. How is it ethical right. that we live in a country where if someone gets cancer, they can go bankrupt? And whether or not they can get treatment depends on how much money they make. That seems absurd. And now we are now shifting back into that dystopian world where even COVID treatment, is going to fall cost-wise on individuals. And so I'm happy for him to clear whatever is over, use whatever language he likes. But is it going to be used as a pretext for the government to stop doing what it can to help people that are still suffering with this crisis?
0: What I hope by COVID is over, he means that we're done, or that the pandemic is over, rather, that we're done treating COVID differently from other diseases or from other issues. It's mm-hmm. this special issue that everything else gets put on hold. That's the f- main thing we have to tackle as a society as a government which has been the case for the last 3 years. So yeah. if, if well, we have the problems you're talking about right with just disease and you know, how do we have to fix our medical system have to covid like other things needs to be addressed but is not yeah. is not the special I, thing we halt yeah. all of us. I like forward. to see
1: everything else ratcheted up to covid levels of oh, care. Oh you know, healthcare should be free as I, I you know obviously think. Um, not ratcheted down but we'll have more rising for you after this. Annan Sayed, the Baltimore man found guilty of murdering his ex-girlfriend as a teenager over 20 years ago, had his conviction overturned in a watershed moment for the case that's captivated tens of millions of listeners of the serial true c- crime podcast since 2014. Sayed, who is now 41 years old, returned home last night for the first time since 1999. Baltimore judge vacated his first-degree murder charge in the interest of justice and fairness, ruling that the original trial's prosecutors failed to properly disclose evidence that pointed to alternative suspects.
0: Mm. Sayed's so, supporters say his life conviction was based on mostly circumstantial evidence that included coerced witness testimony and debunked cell phone tower data. The victim, Heyman Lee, was 18 years old when she was strangled to death. Yesterday, her brother said he feels betrayed by the prosecutor's motion to vacate Syed's conviction, but is open, to a hearing de- is open to hearing details of a renewed investigation into the killer. Joining us now to break down the case for us is News Nation correspondent Kelsey Kernstein. Kelsey, welcome to Rising.
5: Good morning, guys. Yeah, I mean, the prosecutors will have the next 30 days to either drop the case or go ahead and push for uh, new murder charges against uh, Adnan Syed. Uh, Syed. Um, But still a lot of questions remain in the case. We know that there was kind of unreliable witness testimony as well as unreliable data from that cell phone. Uh, Still kind of pending in the case is DNA data.
0: Right. The, the DNA data never, uh, never, you know, definitively demonstrated anything regarding his guilt. Yes. I know there were a lot of previous, uh, you know, motions filed by his defense, kind of hinging on the idea that maybe he did not get the best defense possible from uh, the woman who represented him, Christina Gutierrez, who I believe is now deceased, and I, I think was disbarred or something of that nature uh, before her death. Uh, is that part of, of the details here, a kind of concession that, yeah, you know, he really did not get he did not get fair due process because he was not represented competently?
5: Not necessarily. That's what they're saying. What they're saying is when they dug into his case now, 20 years later, they found new new notes within the case showing um, possible to two little notes saying oh there's two other alternative suspects in the case and it was never released to the defense so this is kind of saying either the authorities or prosecutors in the case back in 1999 they didn't release information to the defense attorney without that information how are they supposed to know what to do Yeah. So
1: I was wondering if you could remind us a little bit, because like a lot of folks I watched or listened rather to serial back in 2014 or 2015 when it came out. And I do have a vague recollection of the suspense of the podcast, largely relating to all of these instances that could potentially be exculpatory, less so that the the podcast is making the case that he was innocent, but that the government hadn't really proved his case. Could you, uh, you know, remind us a little bit of, of, the story there and why it was so compelling to folks in the first instance.
5: Yeah, so this this happened back in 1999, and um, Hayman Lee, she was found dead, buried in a Baltimore park, and um, and authorities that uh, they they believed, or the, the, the prosecutors believed, that um, Adnan Syed was the one who committed the crime, saying that he killed his girlfriend out of spite of her breaking up with him. So they found the body. They believed that uh, there was also another witness testimony. I'm just trying to find his name, Jay Wilds. He kind of had a strange witness testimony, kind of going back and forth on where exactly he saw Syed. He said he saw Syed, said that Syed murdered murdered Heyman Lee, and then they buried her body in a Baltimore park. Um, So just still so many questions and very inconclusive, you know, that cell phone data, um, they thought it was reliable, but now they're finding that the cell phone data wasn't reliable. That actually showed that Syed Syed, that he he was actually near the area where her body was found. Um, But now they're showing these two other, other, two other alternative suspects that could very well have a connection to where her dead body was found, or they said that they were going to murder Heyman Lee.
0: Mm. Right. It, it's, I mean, it's hard because, so I have some, I, well, look, I agree the case seems like it was not handled in the best way, and it might be perfectly valid to say that there isn't actually enough evidence that he did it. I, I agree this witness's testimony was inconsistent, uh, you know, and then ends up making, he ends up making a very strong claim that he helped bury the body, and I think a, a kind of unpersuasive Manner. Uh, I mean, that said, though, we know that, you know, the overwhelmingly, murders are committed by someone known to the victim. Um, D- domestic violence ex boyfriend ex boyfriend husband very very often the actual perpetrator of a crime so i 'd be very interested to know who these other suspects actually were. You know the theory is it's someone random, some stranger that, that does happen. we report on that you know from time to time, but it is it is so rare it would not be the, the most likely thing to have happened, certainly. Uh, in this case. So I don't know what we, what we know about who these other, uh, h- how real you know, the idea that there were other suspects is.
5: They say that the case is ongoing. So they have not released the names of those two other suspects. And, um, you know, some of them are convicted of other situations. One is, I believe, sexual abuse. So some of these kind of linkings into could they possibly have murdered Heyman Lee? Um, But again, also the DNA evidence on Syed, it is not conclusive. And uh, this is, we know that he's been in prison for 20, I believe it's 23 years. This has completely changed his life. and so there's just still too many questions to say whether he did it or not. And of course, a lot of people watch the serial podcast. I just spoke with somebody this morning who say, I'm a diehard fan of that. So now you have all these people kind of watching this case and really wondering what really happened. And I, I think we will find out, are those two suspects potentially linked um, to Heymans Lee's murder?
1: Hmm. Well, you know, with the prosecutors have 30 days, apparently, according to the CNN reporting, to decide whether or not to pursue a new trial. Hmm. Uh, he is out, of course, with an ankle monitor. Uh, so he is being tracked as well. This is hardly the end of this. And we really appreciate you uh, coming yeah. to fill us in on these, on these updates as, as this uh, unfolds over the next few weeks.
5: Thank you. Thank you for your time. Stick around.
1: We'll have more Rising for you after this. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is brainstorming creative ways to address the humanitarian crisis caused by migrants to the city. Yesterday, Adams said he was considering housing immigrants on cruise ships to solve the city's shelter overflow problem. According to the New York Times, more than 11,000 people have arrived in New York City from the border since May, many sent on buses by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Let's hear what Adams had to say on his potential plan.
6: And what, I mean, I want to pursue this thing about the cruise ships. Is that really a possibility that you might be able to do that? We're
3: looking at that. That was something that the previous administrations, um, Bloomberg administration, of my understanding, they looked at that during the surge. And so we're looking at that as a temporary measure, uh, not as a permanent.
1: Many migrant advocates are calling Adam's cruise idea insulting. However, the mayor deflected blame back at Governor Abbott calling the crisis man-made.
3: We're not going to leave any stone unturned. 11,600 11, uh, asylum seekers and migrants uh, are here in the city. 8,500 are in our system. We open up 23 emergency shelters. Uh, we're not going to leave any stone unturned. And once we, uh, once we finalize our plans, we're going to announce it. We're not, there's not going to be any surprises. Once we finalize how we're going to continue to live up to our legal and moral obligation, we're going to announce it. So until then, uh, we're just letting people know what we're thinking of and how we're going to uh, find creative ways to solve this man-made humanitarian crisis. Hmm.
0: But look, like we were talking about in the other segment, I mean, New York, much more so, New York City, much more so than Martha's Vineyard, is a perfectly legitimate destination for migrants. It is a place where they could you connect with uh, family members or people they might know, or or it might just be a good hub city for whatever the next step of their journey is. So I don't, like, it's not... This is not as much of a political stunt at all. This, it is not crazy to put migrants on buses to take them from Texas to New York City. Um, so they need to be prepared to handle that. I don't. I don't. The cruise ship idea. First of all, cruise ships are privately owned ships, so they have to have some arrangement with the cruise ship, right? Yeah, I, I the, mean, they, the idea is they that can't just like.
1: Lots of them are out of commission because of COVID, or maybe people just don't want to go as much now because of COVID, and so they're empty the way that hotels were empty throughout no. the pandemic. So you might as well house people there. Look, it's obviously long-term. Need the, you still
0: need the company's permissions to do it. Yeah. You can't just sure, sure. But you just, look, there, there's a something called the Third Amendment, Brianna. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, I think that it's part of the issue is that it's not a long-term solution. I do think that a lot of the hoteliers were compensated um, for housing folks during the, the pandemic, and there were arrangements made there. But it, again, this all sidesteps the the broader. It, look, okay, it breaks my brain as a member of an American community. Do you think? That asylum seekers should have a decent quality of life while their asylum claims are processed. A process that takes a long time because of our own failure to properly fund our administrative legal system at the border. If the answer is yes, then I don't understand why there's so much conversation about busing people and where they should be. I don't want... And and Democrats aren't angling for immigrants to be on the border. Immigrants are on the border because that's just the geography of the situation. They didn't induce immigrants to be in Texas or Louisiana or wherever else they are. That is just the border. So this idea that somehow Democrats are trying to shirk their responsibility, I mean, I think Democrats are, are always angling for more funding for all of these kinds of programs and services. So if that's the issue, The Republicans go ahead and fund immigration programs, fund housing, and it can be wherever you want it to be. It can be in Texas, it can be in in Nebraska, it can be in New York, it can be in Idaho. I will say it's going to be more expensive to house people in New York because of the cost of living. I think there are a lot, it's a big empty country with a lot of places that could use a lot of immigrants, there's population decline in various parts of the country. There are jobs that need to be done.
0: And it the it, it, focus on the geography here— I mean, what Republicans want to do is send them back. It's not what I want to do, but that's what they want to do. Well, that's the subtext to, to all of yeah. this, right? Like, you know,
1: and that's, that's what, 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 what like they're about and,
0: and many, many people—this is not a fringe Republican issue either. This is, I mean, immigration, you have to admit, is a very good issue for Republicans because a lot of people, in the country, including former immigrants, uh, think— I think we should not be taking in so many immigrants, uh, want uh, want stricter border control policies, and want to send back people who came here illegally.
1: Well, that that's the real tricky thing about asylum. The people who are hand-wringing about the American Dream, I think I saw Lauren Boebert uh, tweeting about how the American Dream isn't for these people. Um, the American Dream should come first to Americans and not these people, or something along those lines. Part of the American Dream and what was supposed to make this country great the promise that's emblazoned on the Statue of Liberty is that we are a country that has accepted asylum seekers and people fleeing religious persecution, political persecution all across the world, since the country's founding. And the idea that this particular group of immigrants, which is from Venezuela, a country that Republicans make a lot of hay about being so terrible and being so repressive because of socialism. No, I agree. I talked about that on my radar say, yesterday. I
0: said that exact thing.
1: Yeah. To, to then turn around and say, oh, send these people back or America is great because we aren't going to offer these people hospitality is a real kink in your message. Well,
0: I, I agree with you, but that is not, the sentiment in the country itself is not quite there. So well, the, I, I would like to that, be, right? I would like there to be uh, much, I would like it to be much easier to come here legally um, and uh, and have a, a faster system and then get people actually wor- in working and paying taxes and contributing. And that would seem just vastly better than what we're doing now with people streaming across the border in conditions that are not safe for them. Well,
1: look, I think we should put that into context as well. I have no interest in minimizing the reality of immigration levels but the truth is that uh, uh, the discourse around people streaming over the borders and numbers being higher than average are simply they don't they don't bear out and we're not seeing a crisis i really resist framing things in a way that makes it seem as though things are getting exponentially worse over time when in fact they are not and when you look back at the enormous pivot that's happened from the republican rhetoric around immigration in the 80s to the republican rhetoric now over immigration what's very clear is is not rooted in a concern about local populations being hurt by immigration and all of that kind of stuff. It has to do with realizing that there's a lot of political capital and making people feel like the real enemy, the thing that's causing their problems and their inability to feed their families is immigrants. And that's a deflection in my view, regardless of how you think about immigrants, from the corporatists who run both of these parties enacting economic policies that are actually crushing workers.
0: But I wanted to, uh, you mentioned something that recalled this story I wanted to address. Uh, so New York City had earmarked Marked $200 million uh, in order to turn hotels into affordable housing to deal with the homelessness crisis. Um, The plan has totally failed. Mm -hmm. They have not developed a single affordable unit Mm -hmm. because, uh, and California did do this, and they developed 12,500 homes, but um, according to the rules of a program established by the state, hotel owners who employ unionized staff must get this trade association's uh, permission to sell the hotels at all, which will never happen so they were they were like limited to like a small number of non unionized hotels, yeah. So it, it, because of the cruise ship thing like a similar thing could happen right There are structural bureaucratic problems that prevent us from doing things that seem obvious to people, like, oh, well, yeah, all the hotels are empty in New York. Can't we work something out? And then there's just, no, you can't, because there's an impediment in the law.
1: Well, that, I mean, but it's not a legal impediment. It's the fact that there are workers at hotels impediment. who don't who don't want to be out of a job as a consequence of this. And that's legitimate, too. And it's what we should really be asking ourselves is why every solution comes at the expense of other working people. And people are putting, being put against each other in these zero-sum games instead of more of the onus being put on people— who are frankly both very affluent and affluent in part because they are exploiting these labor dynamics and low-income labor from immigrants and all of these other other types of
0: situations Mm so i agree it's a lot to work out all right we'll have more rising right after this (music) president biden thinks a rail strike has been averted but do rail workers agree? As reported by Labor Notes John Furman, only one union would have to vote against the White House's tentative agreement to shut down a substantial amount of freight rail traffic and spark a crisis in the supply chain. We're joined now by General Secretary of Railroad Workers United and Amtrak engineer Ron Kamenko, along with editor in chief of the Real News Network, Max Alvarez. Welcome to you both.
6: Morning, guys. Good morning.
0: Ron, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, describe the situation to me right now as you see it. We're all, obviously, I think everyone does not want to see a, a strike, if it can possibly be avoided because of the you know, catastrophe that would be economically. But, but you know, where are we, and uh, is, is the picture not as rosy as the Biden administration or the news are making it out to be?
6: Well, what happened on Friday was basically we were coming down to the wire the end of the 30-day cooling-off period, And uh, the powers that be, the union leadership, of course, and the uh, Democratic Party, and and one could say the country, whatever that means in general, uh, would like to have avoided a strike. And so they managed at the last moment to hammer out a tentative agreement. And three of the stickling points were um, the harsh attendance policies, the inability to take time off for medical Uh, personal reasons uh, the lack of paid sick time and no semblance of a schedule for most railroad workers in train and engine service who work over the road Uh, so there was some degree of concession there um, but it was also offset by uh, some of the things that the rail carriers won, such as self-protecting pools so the devil's in the details and right now it's just not clear Uh, especially since no one, and the unions have said this, no one has actually seen the final language. So right now it's sheer speculation on the part of the rank and file of the operating crafts as to is this good, is it bad, or is it ugly? So a strike is still possible because the rank and file have the last word, and that vote will not come for some time yet.
1: Max, I saw Jonah Furman, for example, on Friday warning that there was some risk in the media covering this as like a crisis averted because that lets the pressure off um, that the uh you know the striking workers are obviously trying to build, uh, and if people feel like this is a crisis that's largely in the rear view mirror, they basically don 't have as much uh, leverage in terms of uh, arguing for the various um, you know, uh, scheduling and time off protections that they're looking for. What's your read on how this is going? Do you think it was a strategic move on the part of the Biden administration and some more corporate media figures to go ahead and frame this the way that it's been framed, given that the language is still out and the jury is still out?
7: So, I mean, I definitely think it is strategic on the uh, side of the Biden administration because, you know, we Biden's polling numbers had managed to kind of bounce back. There was obviously a lot of fear that Democrats were headed right in walking like headfirst into a bandsaw for the midterm elections and then you know the the you know polling numbers for democrats started to jump up over the course of the summer they don't want to lose any of that momentum and you know a national rail shutdown which would have catastrophic economic consequences you know if that was blamed on the workers and you know implicated and biden was implicated for you know being nominally pro-union Republicans would have, you know, that to to kind of rail rail about, you know, in the lead up to the midterm elections. As far as the media is concerned. I don't know how strategic it is, because I think in order for there to be a strategy, they actually have to know what they're talking about. And sadly, what I realize is most people in the mainstream media have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to labor relations, especially labor relations on the railroads. We saw this in the, in the week leading up to the deadline after which um, rail uh, strikes could be initiated by the unions or rail lockouts could be initiated by the rail carriers that was uh, last Friday that was the deadline and you know the mainstream media had largely been ignoring the story all year but we had been covering it at the Real News and Jonah Furman and the folks at Labor Notes have been doing a great job of covering it as well but it's been largely flying under the radar and until we were at the moment of crisis then everyone started taking an interest and I think like what was really clear at that point was just um, again how paltry our general understanding of how these things work is because we kept talking about the devastation of a rail strike rail strike it was all about what are the workers going to do to disrupt the supply chain at the very moment that rail carriers were holding the supply chain in our economy hostage by illegally initiating soft lockouts before the actual deadline when they could do such things so they were basically threatening Congress, threaten the economy. This is what a rail shutdown would look like if you don't cave to our demands and give us what we want. So the, the quick answer to your question, Bree, is that the crisis-averted narrative is wrong in two senses. One, it's wrong as Ron said that we have averted a rail strike because that may still very much be in the cards. The unions have not actually seen the details of this tentative agreement. They still have to vote on it, and they may vote it down, and it may only take one union voting it down for this to kind of really kick off what we know and we all, we don't know what's in that uh, agreement what we know for sure is that the mm-hmm. cooling off period has been extended so the 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 energy that had built up and folks were ready to strike um, you know, that is kind of, you know, yeah. put on the back burner. And yeah. the other crisis is that the PE, the, none of this has addressed the, the real crisis on the supply chain, which has been caused by corporate greed that has reduced quality of service on the freights, reduced quality of life for workers on the freight railroads, at the same time that rail carriers have been jacking up prices on everybody and stuffing their wallets with um, stock buybacks and dividend
6: payouts.
0: Yeah. Ron, what do you think about the coverage from the mainstream media? Uh, do you, Do you agree with
6: Max? Yeah, I mean, it was so glossed over as to be either out of ignorance or or it was just disingenuous on the part of a lot of the players uh, on Friday, because we were talking about actually three unions, the two unions of the operating crafts, which are big, and then the Brotherhood of Railway Signalmen, which is a much smaller organization. That's three of them. There's nine others. And of those nine others, we know that one, at least one at this point, uh, the rank and file of the IAM, International Association of Machinists, uh, voted their tentative agreement down by almost a two-to-one margin. And they have ex- uh, the, the leadership of IAM agreed to extend the cooling-off period uh, to September 29th. And technically, on September 29th, that union could go on strike. Uh, The electricians, which did a paper ballot, IBEW, uh, it's my understanding that they expect uh, to have the results of their plebiscite uh, at that exact same time. And so we could actually see two unions uh, potentially call a strike on the 29th. We don't know, but that's an option. And if they were to strike, the unions of the operating crafts, as well as every other uh, craft union out there, uh, the assumption is that the rank and file would refuse to cross the picket line just like was done in 1992, and we would have a national shutdown.
1: Ron, given how significant this particular industry is to the economy, some people on the left have been asking why it is that there would even be a question that a tentative agreement, like the one that was reached, reached you know on Friday, would offer so little. Uh, In terms of concessions to workers, the tentative agreement involved, I believe, one vacation day. You know, is there a conversation happening about whether or not this moment should be used to ask for more? And if not, is it because there are concerns about how much the American public, having largely been dissuaded from union support as compared to what it used to be in the past, will not support railway workers going forward if they ask for anything more than the bare minimum?
6: Well, there's huge discontent out there. And, you know, from the opinion poll that we ran about a month ago now, uh, every craft, every union, um, every seniority group, and every age group uh, responded with over a 90% response rate that they were not happy with the PEB recommendations, uh, and an even higher response rate in that mid around 95, 96%, that... Uh, railroad workers should exercise their legitimate right to strike. So just from those numbers, we know that there's a huge amount of discontent out there in the rail industry. And of course, it's not just in the rail industry. It's amongst the working class in general. And that's been evidenced by what's going on at places like Target and Starbucks and uh, Walmart and Amazon and so forth. So there's an unprecedented, in effect, uprising of working class people in this country who have said, we deserve more Um, and so what we're seeing is rank and file workers taking the bull by the horns and actually calling for actions in the form of pickets all across the country and this is going to come as early as this coming wednesday this is not something that has been called by the official union leadership uh, and this isn't something that has been called officially by railroad workers united this is a groundswell grassroots rank and file movement that is taking hold in this country right now Uh, and we're expecting to see pickets at dozens if not scores and ideally hundreds of rail terminals uh, all across the country this wednesday and there's talk about this escalating to the point where potentially doing this every week uh, potentially having a much larger uh, mass day of action uh, as the contract uh, things starts to wind its way through the fall and things start to heat back up again. So it remains to be seen exactly, you know, what form that discontent will take, but we know it's out there. Um, it's, it's palpable. It's in the air.
0: Mm. Well, Max and Ron, thank you so much for joining us to shed more light on the situation. We really appreciate it.
6: Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank you.
0: And we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Stay with us. Are Democrats losing headway among Hispanic voters? We've been tracking this trend here on the show. Now a new poll has more insight. According to a New York Times Siena College poll among Hispanic voters, 56% said they would vote for a Democratic candidate if congressional elections were held today, while 32% said they would go for the Republican on the ticket. But the worrying sign for Democrats is that 54 percent of respondents are voting based on the economy, and they are evenly split on which party they agree with more on that issue.
1: It's true that Donald Trump made headway with Hispanic voters in 2020, but Democrats still enjoy an overwhelming support from this group. Joining us now to delve more into this issue is Hill reporter Rafael Bernal. Rafael, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: So in some ways when we talk about this, it seems that the real story here is uh, how shocking it is that people who are not white would vote for a Republican. And the reason this is supposed to be shocking is because the Democratic narrative for years was that Republicans are the party of racists, especially in the Trump era. It was really emphasized that, you know, two to vote for Trump to be Republican at that point was to, at very least, tolerate racism even if you yourself didn't embrace it. And so it confuses people who don't think that folks vote on any other axis um, as to why Latinos would continue to vote, and obviously Latinos are a racial group, or are white Latinos, et cetera, but why Latinos would continue to vote for uh, Donald, uh, Donald Trump and Republicans more broadly. What do you make of these trends?
4: Well, I, I think you you bring up a really interesting broader idea that it confuses people that non-whites would vote for Republicans. So let's remember that the sort of in the United States, when you think of non-white, you think of black.
6: Mm-hmm. Uh, there's
4: been this this country's based on black and it is, was founded on black and white, and now as more diversity has come into the mix, different voting behaviors uh, make make that dichotomy a little bit more confusing. Mm-hmm. So yes. Black voters overwhelmingly vote for Democrats, and this has to do everything with what's happened from the 1960s to today. You know that that's a that's a different story. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Hispanic voters, um, they they act uh, they, they're a little bit more geographically separated, nation of origin separated, and definitely generationally separated. Um, so so these these behaviors are can be a little bit more confusing to track. I will say one thing about this poll I went into the methodology uh, that's the first thing you have to do with any Hispanic poll because it's hard to pull Hispanics in general and it, I'm no statistician but the parts that I know the check boxes that I have to check to know if a poll is believable this one actually checks them all.
0: Hmm. Because I was seeing a lot of criticism of this poll from Republicans, which might just be wishful thinking, criticism, obviously. Uh, I, I, They're hoping to be doing, I think, even better with um, Hispanics than this poll suggests. And of course, you know, we have seen you know, in the last two cycles, I think there have been some polling surprises when it actually comes to the last two presidential cycles, at least, when it comes to some polling, um, be, uh, more uh, Republicans outperforming uh, some polls in, in some various places, I think, including with Hispanic groups. But there were some more interesting uh, takeaways we wanted to look at. Democrats are finding favor with older Latinos, according to the poll, while those in the younger generation are actually more open to voting red, which is fascinating. Republicans are also making gains among Hispanic voters in the South and with Latino men, while the latter group is more likely to vote blue. They also say they'd vote for Donald Trump if he were on the ticket in 2024 by a five-point margin. Uh, So what do you make of that? Specifically, the old young split is interesting because, you know, one of the most basic sort of polling realities, right, is that in in many cases, at least younger voters are are tend toward progressivism in some way. Uh, what, What is there anything that could explain why you're seeing more support for Republicans among younger Latinos versus older Latinos?
4: I think young Latinos in general aren't as tied to either party. They don't have that tradition. Again, stemming from the 1960s, the oldest of, of Latino voters, uh, many of them in California, are were part of this Chicano movement, of the, of the first sort of movement of recognizing the community as a latino community as a distinct community and that was that was very tied to the labor movement so that was very tied to democrats it just kind of worked out that way then you have that middle generation that's a little bit uh, you know you some of them some of them were yuppies in the 80s some of them were still farm workers in the 80s you know and then the younger generation is is really a generation that parties have to work and, and invest to reach out to. Uh, there's this often repeated statistic, but by being often repeated, doesn't mean it's any less true. One million Latinos become, turn 18 every year. That means they become potential voters. So those, they're, they're a bit more of an open book because Democrats have not done a great job. In some places they've done a pretty good job but they've not done a great job of reaching out to these voters and the one thing that, th- that this poll really shows me that is something we knew but this confirms is that latinos are very heavily issue voters this is why for instance the environment tends to be a more important uh, issue among latinos it's just because they tend to live in many parts of the country not everywhere but in many parts of the country they tend to live in places that are more polluted or more affected by climate change Think California with the fires, or Florida with the potential for sea level rise. Um, you know, uh, the economy is important. Well, you know, these uh, these are communities that have not built as much wealth. Economic ups and downs hit them harder. Uh, this these there are there are a lot of reasons why Latinos show a little bit less party loyalty. There are a lot of reasons why younger Latinos show even less party loyalty. But there are a lot of reasons why, and, and this poll kind of shows it. They tend the trend toward democrats because because on the issues democrats are still sort of trying to appeal and you know giving the kind of message of healthcare of education and rather than the uh, the more sort of libertarian argument that the uh, libertarian and social argument that the republican party is putting out there
1: Well, the poll also found that roughly 60% of Hispanic voters continue to see Team Blue as the party of the working class, saying, quote, there was no evidence in the poll that Republicans were performing any stronger among non-college educated Latinos or among Hispanics who lived in rural areas. Two key demographic groups they have focused on for outreach. One in four Hispanic voters in rural areas remain undecided about who they will vote for in November. Rafael, you point to the issue focus and the fact that Latinos tend to live in places where they're experiencing more environmental harms, um, climate change. Uh, you mentioned health care. I got to say, I got to point to, again, this kind of unreported on an under-discussed phenomenon of Bernie Sanders and Latino voters in 2020 and the fact that he won Nevada with 70 percent of Latino vote, including disrupting the culinary union's uh, kind of leadership's endorsement of, of Joe Biden when rank-and-file broke away and, and voted for Bernie Sanders regardless of what the leadership had said. And the issue when you spoke to people there on the ground was largely health care. Do you think this could potentially be a selling point for Democrats going forward if they actually get back on board with this kind of a universal health care message, or at least do more substantively to reform our health care system than is currently being done?
4: You know, actually Bernie's outreach to Latinos is the key question here. You're asking the exact right question. Because Democrats, by and large, you know, from from the far left to moderates, they're proposing pretty much the same the same package of things. It's a little painted a little bit differently, but it's the same package of things and proposals. Uh, But what Bernie did is he turbocharged what what Latino consultants, in particular, Chuck Rocha, who's been on the show a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. He told them, like, this is what Latinos want out of a Democratic campaign. You have all the policy stuff. Like you, you have the proposals that that you know we know work with this crowd. We, you have the connections to the unions that we know are important to a lot of Latinos, especially in Nevada um, and and other places as well. But Nevada is a big the union place. But but you just don't reach out enough. you just don't invest enough in campaigns and and what Bernie proved is if you reach out enough, you invest in campaigns, you do it with cultural competency and, and you really you know you you put some funding behind it like it's it's not just uh, we want to reach out, but we're uh, we're going to assign five percent of the budget to twenty percent of the, of the voting population now it's twenty percent of the budget to twenty percent of the voting population and they got results that was that was that's what they proved it, it was that if you have the issues, which in many ways, at least, what is it, 56 percent, according to this poll, uh, 56 percent of Latinos, are Democrats do, if you actually communicate that, you might get people out voting and you might, you know, you might win more elections.
0: Hmm. Well, Raphael, thank you so much for shedding light on this very interesting phenomenon that we will be continuing to discuss on the show for certain. Thanks so much and see you next time.
4: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: And we'll have more rising right after this. D.C. Mayor Mariel Bowser announced a new D.C. pilot program on Monday that will spend nearly $25 million, including through gifts of up to $10,000 in cash, to help 600 low-income D.C. families find stable housing. In addition to the cash, available benefits include rent and career support, and a recurring deposit of $200 in a savings account for every month a family pays their portion of the rent.
1: Mayor Bowser explained that some residents enrolled in government assistance programs face a dilemma when choosing jobs if the new earnings are less valuable than the benefits they receive from the government. She referred to this as the benefits cliff. The Career Mobility Act plan is aimed at helping families who are transitioning out of homelessness but do not require permanent housing vouchers. According to Bowser, quote, we are creating a new program that helps fill that gap. Hmm. So, Robbie, you know, how do you feel about this?
0: Well, look, I am happy to hear some acknowledgement that it can be the case that you can have a welfare policy so generous that it disincentivizes people from, um, you know, pulling Taking care of themselves, or getting housing, or getting jobs, or whatever it is, because the program itself is so generous. That's exactly what. Well, I don't know Ariel Bowser is saying the
1: argument. The argument isn't that the programs are so generous, but that when they have a cliff, instead of kind of titrating out over time, the incentives sure. can be that it's better to. Take the social benefit and not, and also be able to stay right. home from work, be with the kids, not have to pay for childcare, then earning $10, $100, $1,000, even more, but then not having to pay for all of the loss of those benefits. So one of the criticisms of welfare reform in the 90s under Bill Clinton was that he changed welfare from a program that was used for people to get back on their feet and was very effective as a program that people could use as they were in school, as they got, you know, the credentialing that they needed to get the kinds of different kinds of jobs to making it a work required program that created these kinds of incentives where, especially for working mothers, you know, given the childcare mm-hmm. costs, having to work while you did the other things that are supposed to be getting you on your feet really made it a difficult, financial decision for you.
0: Well, and unhoused uh, families are probably uh, an easier uh, situation to address, or, or there would probably be a higher likelihood of success, I would think, mm-hmm. addressing the, this it, their issues with something like this, because they're probably more likely to just have fallen on hard times or have some situation, and they have incentive, right, they have a you have a family unit, you have people to take care of. It, it's not the same, or it's probably not always the same, or as closely related to the kind of, you know, drug addiction, mental illness problem that we're seeing in a lot of Although, these cities.
1: There are, I mean, there are mentally ill people who have families and people who struggle with addiction who have families as well. I do think it's more I mean, I, I presume when they're talking about
0: families, they're talking about kids as well in the mix. Um,
1: yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately yeah. a lot of people's parents have drug addiction and mental health issues as well. I mean,
0: well, I, okay, but if they're, if they're homeless and their parents are drug addicts and mentally ill i mean then and i'm the most reluctant to call child services for any reason but then i mean that is the point at which you you have them taken for to foster care right i mean
1: no i mean there's lots of people who are affluent whose parents also have uh, substance abuse issues and uh, mental illness and their kids aren't taken away you know this is part of the issue with poverty and homelessness and these cycles of abuse Well, yeah, when when problems become visible, suddenly the state intervenes. And the conditioning of whether or not the state intervenes, I would argue, shouldn't be on the basis of whether or not someone is rich or poor, but about whether you think there's an underlying harm to kids. And so, you know, this is when people talk about, for example, police being called disproportionately on folks that live in apartment buildings and lower income folks, generally speaking, because if you have a fight... And your neighbor is more likely to call you if you live in an apartment, you know, the call the police if you're in an apartment versus in a standalone home. Now, if there's abuse going on and there's a fight, I would say the police or whomever should be involved, regardless of if you're rich or poor, but, you know, these situations create disproportionate policing on low-income people and how to how to untangle that and make sure that people are helped who need help but aren't criminalized because of their poverty status as part of the ongoing concern of a lot of criminal justice but advocates. Is,
0: right. But that's a great example of something can be disproportionate but still, like the like to make it to fix it, you would make it proportionate by having more policing on the other community too, not necessarily less policing on the community in question.
1: Or you know, have interventions that don't involve the police. So are you know people struggling to get out of abusive relationships? Are they encountering these kind of housing issues as mm-hmm. they try to get away? Is that part of why they're staying in these relationships? You know, those are the kinds of things we'd like to entangle. So I do think this is, to your point, a more sympathetic group because there are children involved. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll
0: see. Well, my, my point was a, a group whose issues are more easily addressed with actual cash payments, is what I would say. Perhaps. Perhaps. All right. Meanwhile, Los Angeles has experienced a 4% increase in its homeless population during the pandemic, with over 69,000 unhoused people counted across the country this year, according to The Guardian. But the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, which conducted the count in February of this year after skipping a year during the pandemic, said the growth of the unhoused population had slowed in the last two years, in part due to pandemic programs and increase social funding. So the previous count conducted in January 2020 showed a 13% jump from uh, 2019. And of course, we had a guest on the show last week who was arguing in that one of these um, kind of homelessness poverty debates we've been having uh, was arguing that a, a lot of the, he, based on his understanding, his actual conversations with unhoused people in California, that many of them do have homes they can go to. They have families. They have people who have beds for them, bedrooms for them. But they can't because of their. The, the real issue is is drug addiction because they're going to have an episode and they need to be. They need to be on Skid Row. They need to be, you know, where, where the tents are, where the drug dealer is so they can get access to drugs and that's really what prevents him uh, prevents those people from being being they, they have home we, we don't need to throw homes at, I mean it's all would always be better to have more homes and to allow more housing to be built but then a, but then it addressing the drug addiction is the main issue. Yeah,
1: that was Layton Woodhouse making that argument. And so we, what we came up with is that there were two issues here. One, you obviously can't kind of frog march people at gunpoint back to their parents' houses if they're struggling with addiction. So the question is, are there resources available to help people with these addiction services? And I think both guests agree that there really were not. So again, I think we kind of keep having these homelessness conversations that talk past each other where people say, oh, well, you know, the real issue isn't homelessness or the real issue isn't this, that, and the other. People have homes, like all of these are kind of missing the point. Everybody agrees that there's an addiction problem that many people have that's at the root of their homelessness. Are we going to do something about that? And the real tension there was, does a housing-first plan Um, kind of require housing before the addiction is taken care of. And again, there's a little bit of slippage there because it's like, if you want someone to have addiction services and there aren't addiction services, are you then then saying that the person should be living in the street and in Skid Row? And if that's the solution, then that's the solution. But then you have a bunch of other people complaining about the optics of Skid Row and we
0: go round and round and round in a circle. And round and round, we will continue to go, likely, because this is an issue that uh, really frustrates and perplexes a lot of people and one we have a lot of interest in. And we'll continue to discuss on the show. And we'll have more rising right after this. President Biden reportedly spoke with Puerto Rican Governor Pedro Pierluisi in the wake of Hurricane Fiona. Biden said they discussed federal personnel working to assist the island's recovery. The hurricane left the entire island out of power, which a local energy company said it could take days to resolve. Today, the FEMA administration will be in San Juan to assess urgent needs. The intense flooding and winds left 1.4 million households in the
1: dark. While nearly 200,000 people were left without drinking water,
0: mm. that's terrible. And obviously, yeah. an island that's been hit a couple times recently. Yeah, um, and seemingly
1: with increasing frequency. Obviously, many people will point to this being the natural consequence as of you know climate change, and that these kind of disasters are going to happen more and more and more at great cost and expense. You know, there's also this conversation that's happening right now about what it means that an entire you know, st- state worth of Americans is left without power and largely without water, without there being anywhere near the public outcry that you would expect if you know Texas or New York or Wyoming or even a small state like Vermont mm. had a similar um, catastrophe hit them, and then to hit them repeatedly. Right. And what's going to be different the next time something happens like this, which it absolutely will, because of the nature of these. Um, Weather events.
0: Well, I say this every time uh, we talk about Puerto Rico, really, in any context, but it's particularly appropriate for this subject. Uh, The Jones Act, which is this horrible hundred-year-old protectionist U.S. law, uh, that that, uh, when when you're shipping goods from one American port to another American port, the ship must be American-built, it must fly an American flag, and it must be American. It must have an American crew. Uh, Again, this is like Woodrow Wilson-era policy. it's not my understanding is it's not a huge deal for the for the land part of the country the the continental part but uh, it it makes life uh worse for hawaii and for puerto rico especially it drives up their energy prices ridiculously they're all out of power right now they have to overpay for this is according to a report from the cato institute the jones act forces puerto rico to vastly overpay for energy um so so, some of these continuing crises they have uh, uh, yes obviously Climate change having a factor, but our policies are just immiserating this poor island. Uh, there, there's no, and this policy is suspended every time there's a uh, there's a disaster in Puerto Rico. The, the last time there was, the Trump administration waived it. Well, if we admit that it's so bad for Puerto Rico that when they're really under crisis, we're we're gonna waive it. Shouldn't we just get rid of it then? Sh- shouldn't they? Shouldn't it not under normal times for the or quote unquote normal times? Shouldn't they just be better off without it? Like it, it does nothing except protect like a small number of American ship manufacturers mm-hmm. from legitimate competition,
7: mm-hmm. which
0: used to be a goal of you know the American ship industry.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think that's a perfectly legitimate criticism. I know there's also been a lot of conversation. About about the privatization schemes uh, of the of the power in in um, in Puerto Rico, generally speaking, and the amount of death of the country is in partly as a consequence. Um, you know, uh, the port apparently the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority um, uh, basically. It's been underinvested in, and also, you know, there's been privatization schemes, which as we kind of saw in Mississippi, Mm -hmm. tend to make it so that people can extract wealth from these kind of schemes without investing for the long-term infrastructure projects. And it's happening all over the place. So there are some folks that are saying, well, what if Puerto Rico were a state? Can you imagine this happening to a state? And other folks have responded, well, it's happening in a state, you Mm -hmm. know, in, in the continental United States, and that doesn't really seem to be what's going on here.
0: What are Puerto, we, yeah, Puerto Ricans have, uh, right, they've been sort of, get, they put it to a vote whether they would like to be a state or not, and they they, they rejected that, right? They they don't want the, uh, I don't know, they like their own kind of quasi-self-governance.
1: Well, the argument, I, I, this is a bigger conversation, and we should definitely yeah. have, you know, an, uh, someone from Puerto Rico want to discuss, but the issue is that I, they're being presented with kind of um, uh, two choices, neither, which is especially... uh, You know, there there are Mm -hmm. people who make arguments that there are other ways to um, have... More self determined. Like the, the question is mm-hmm. if you become a state, are you still going to have these underlying issues? If you, uh, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to be independent, be- not because I don't want to be independent, but because the feeling is that the country can't s- sustain itself without being a part of the American <laughs> family mm-hmm. slash colony, however you want to describe it. And so are these are constrained choices or are these choices? being made with the understanding of the poverty that the country is in and the lack of resources being given to actually have, like, a fair start after all of these years of being uh, under America's um, protectorship. Well,
0: political commentators were quick to point out the media's ignorance on this topic. CNN's Anna Navarro. Cardenas said, quote, I respect the Queen as much as the next person. I offer my condolences to the Brits and all who loved her, but can I please get some news and footage of the effects of Fiona in Puerto Rico? For those who need reminding, they are American citizens in distress. Podcaster Dr. Jen Jackson tweeted, White supremacy is the whole world focusing on the casket, funeral proceedings, and death of an imperialist monarch who symbolized colonialism, while countries populated by people of of color and are underwater and without power. Well, that's a, that's a Brianna take. How so? Um, I'm just going to speaking to the colonialism of the British Crown, something we've discussed on this show. I mean, I, well, look. Well,
1: yeah, look. I think it could be the queen. It could be any number of things. But it's obviously frustrating when the news decides not to focus on major crises because I mean, of if, some kind of spicy, more media style But what do you mean that? focus
0: on? I'm sure this is being covered in every outlet like just because you haven't seen enough tweets about it doesn't mean it's not being.
1: Covered. No, apparently not. I mean, I'm not a cable news viewer, but the feedback that I've seen is that there has been there has been live streams of the queen and her casket and her funeral procession and a great deal of coverage of it, as compared to Puerto Rico. Now, I will say I, I'm not a I'm not a, a real cable viewer, but when I turn my TV on, if I don't immediately open one of the apps, it defaults to playing the news, and every time it did that over the course of the weekend, it definitely was live streams and looping conversations about the queen and her legacy. I feel like I've seen her give that speech in South Africa a million times just because of the autoplay function on my, you know, like streaming device. Uh, So I think that's a legitimate, legitimate complaint. You don't, you don't think
0: that's true. I mean, I'm sure if, their viewers wanted to watch more coverage of hurricanes, and that's what they, and which they cover, actually do cover national disasters. Do you think market
1: forces are dictating what's happening on the news, even though we've had so many conversations about how the mainstream media overfocuses Some on Russia Gate and um, you know one six and are well, losing subscribers as a consequence?
0: Well, but they've that coverage. It, they've cultivated an audience who rapidly wants that kind of coverage at CNN and MSNBC. If you're talking about Russia, do they? If they're losing subscribers all the time? Well, there aren't enough of them, and they've committed to a bad strategy but they actually like coverage of queen elizabeth's funeral is probably even much more broad something like people will turn on to even who wouldn't generally watch the news because people are i mean people are generally interested i'm surprised by as as an american who like doesn't love the institution of the monarchy and never really cared about the royal family that much i'm always surprised but it seems to me to be the case that people are really invested and they they do want that kind of coverage, And is that what so, should drive
1: news, news coverage? The, you know what's the relationship between newsworthiness and um, you know collecting advertiser dollars? Like I mean in an a, a news screen?
0: organization that continuously shows or tells its viewer news that they care less about is just not going to succeed. So at the end of the day, there's, it's, it's pointless to complain about it.
1: Well, I think you also tell people you help to let people know what is relevant by what it is that you
0: cover. Also, this is and how Anna Navarro. If it. it's so important, then CNN can do wall-to-the uh, uh, View rather can do wall-to-wall coverage of. Well, it's not just Puerto Anna Rico, Navarro. Right? A lot I mean... of people
1: were <laughs> echoing the sentiment, and I and I do think there's some important conversations to be had about what is motivating news coverage and whether or not a national disaster that has wiped out power for the entire you know, state of Puerto Rico is something that should get more coverage than a foreign monarch passage at a healthy, ripe old age. Mm.
0: But people who have that problem can all, especially if they're in the journalism industry, they can just, they can just be the change they want to see in the world and cover it as we are covering it. Yeah, well, I I hope to do a lot more Puerto Rico coverage this week. Absolutely as well. More Rising right after this.
1: Yesterday, professor, scientist, and commentator Dr. Vinay Prasad joined me on my podcast, Bad Faith, and sounded off on what the left got wrong during COVID. Let's watch some of that.
0: I'm sort of sympathetic to your your colleagues' views on masking, et cetera. Um, Why? Because I think that, you know, we did get it. With the progressive side, we got a lot of these issues wrong. I I fear we were on the wrong side of school closure. We're on the wrong side of vaccine mandates to go to school. We're still on the wrong side of masking two-year-olds. We're against the World Health Organization there, and we're on the wrong side of like aggressively pushing a perpetual booster campaign, which is really the end game of Pfizer and Moderna and their stockholders, without holding them to task. Um, and and so there, I totally agree with your co-host. Yeah.
1: So this was a uh, long, I'm the colleague. You're, who was you're, the right. colleague you're my co-host. So this was obviously a long, you know, uh, hour-long conversation mm-hmm. where we got into a lot of the details that we discuss on the show. And what I really appreciate about Dr. Prasad is that, you know, this isn't a kind of a flat COVID denialism or anything like that. Not that you did that either. But it's a conversation about whether or not, as the facts change with related with respect to COVID, with the um, transmissibility of the variants, with the degree to which vaccines and boosters actually prevent transmission, whether or not policy should change accordingly. And whether or not Democrats have kept up with those changes in a way that allowed them to still be credible interlocutors in terms of public policy. Now, I think there's a different question that's very much should be asked, which is, is uh, d- a declaration that COVID's over going to absolve the administration of responsibility to pick up the tab for uh, people who still continue to get sick from COVID in large numbers, who continue to be hospitalized um, and die from COVID in still significant numbers? Something like um, you know, 7,000 people in the first two weeks of September obviously right. expired from COVID, and that's still very serious.
0: Yes, although we do have to be a little bit careful. Look... Obviously, COVID is still having a negative health effect on people are dying who have the disease, and it, it would be ridiculous to say it's not doesn't contribute to their death. But we do have to be a little like right 400 to 500 people still dying a day. They have COVID when they die, and probably it it may, very well may have contributed. But it they might have other. Um, they might have other crippling health factor. They, where a case of the flu might have knocked them out. Um, yeah. They might. It, it's not. It's not lethal in the same scary way that. You get it, and it just it nukes your system, and that it can do that to you, even if you're a very young, a much younger person, like we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. I saw a a video that Dr. Prasad did on actually on the boosters, kind of evaluating Mm -hmm. the boosters, and he's been, I think uh, it's fair to say, a little skeptical of of the need for them. And what he, but he was saying to be clear, like there is no for for the first round of vaccination for the elderly, it is obvious, and I think it's important to state that from his even you know skeptical, very against management, mandates and skeptical of some of the boosters' perspective, he was saying that it's just abundantly clear for old people who didn't have any protection that when you were facing you know, the original strain and the delta strain that, sure, there are always going to be unknown variables. You don't know per- what side effects or somebody could have a negative reaction. Or- but the calculation was just very extremely in favor of giving people at risk. The vaccine. Yeah. But Now we're yeah. getting to a place where where he is he and others are saying like you know and I, I still think it should be your choice. Absolutely, it makes sense for a, a lot of people probably, but to have the requirement for younger people when you can't demonstrate. A, a really um, a community benefit. Uh, you can't demonstrate because, any community yeah. benefit, and uh, for, for a lot of people, you can't. I don't think you can really demonstrate substantial harm either from getting it. Right. But it's hard to find substantial benefit even at the individual level right. for people not. And
1: at risk. that's his point. That you know, you have to look. He, his argument is that you have to start looking at an individual basis and not doing this kind of group. Uh, prescriptions for all college kids, for instance, or all, you know, all Mm -hmm. people who are on public transportation or whatever the the mandated group is to say, if the benefits come down compared to where they were at the beginning of the pandemic for a variety of reasons, and if you are in a risk group where the benefits are relatively small because you are young, because you've recently gotten COVID and have the, you know, immunological benefits of having uh, just come through the sickness, then why should you be treated the same way as an elderly person who's being recommended to get the booster for reasons that are very much beneficial and and protective? And if your own benefit as a younger, healthier person who has recently had COVID of getting a booster are relatively low, then should we then have to pay more attention to the costs, the potential costs of getting the vaccine as well? So therefore, are we going to look more closely at myocarditis and some of these other things, but even if they have a very small effect, if the upside is also very small, suddenly weigh more on various populations, so, to have that conversation, and just to have a conversation about whether different populations should be treated differently with respect to COVID interventions, I, the pushback yeah. that I've gotten has been um, pretty
0: tremendous. Tremendous. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well put. And, it, and I think this is also something that's hurting the left, which is that. It is completely fair to push back as I did in the context mm-hmm. of this interview on many, ask, you know, many claims that Dr. Prasad makes. I, I, think he's more flippant about masking and the benefits of masking than I am. Regardless of mandates, mandates aside, I, I would, I wouldn't be quite so cavalier about masking and effective when it depends largely on the quality of the mask and the compliance with which you wear it. I also have more questions about long COVID than he does. You know, he seems to be in a, a position where he's like, because we don't know that much, I'm not willing to weigh it as much. Whereas I feel very differently I think you know, you don't want to walk down that road if potentially it could be very harmful and we could be having to pay for the long-term effects of people dealing with long COVID paid for as a community and both financially for a very long time. However, if you aren't even willing to have a conversation, then these conversations are happening in spaces completely without the input of people with my own political ideology, the left, and we're losing ground because of it.
0: Well, yeah, when I was on uh, your podcast with um, with Walker Bragman and we were having the kind of masking and school closures um, debate, it seemed to me from the reaction, and you're right, I'm not in your ideological camp at all, but seen from the reaction that at least a substantial portion maybe even a close uh, approaching half uh, agreed with me, uh, or at least some of what I was saying. It was that
1: conversation that we had, in fact, that that caused me to invite Dr. Prasad on because so many Mm. people recommended a follow-up.
0: Well, unfortunately for our friends over at Moderna, Biden's declaration that COVID is over has caused their stock to drop, but it looks like Biden's surgeon general is playing clean up a little bit after this misstatement. Who says COVID is still a top priority for the administration? Let's watch that
8: well it's good to see you as well i actually don't think they're all that different what the president's reflecting is the fact that we've made tremendous progress against COVID-19. We're in a very different place now than we were at the beginning of this pandemic with significantly lower death rates. We have all of our children back in school. We have people able to go back to work, families and friends able to see each other. But he also said, you know, we have more work to do on COVID and that's right. And that's what Dr. Fauci and others have expressed as well. Uh, You know, we're losing about 400 people a day on average for this virus. We need to get that number lower. We have people who are struggling with long COVID. We need to understand more about long COVID and how to prevent it. And we also, thankfully, have a new updated vaccine uh, that's available that can extend people's protection, strengthen their protection against the worst outcomes of COVID. We need people to take that vaccine. So there is more work to do, no doubt. But we are in a much better place uh, than we were at the beginning
0: of this pandemic. Do so you know, I don't know. Do you think he's just defending Moderna's bottom line here?
1: Look, it, it's it's a, one of these frustrating situations where it. <laughs> I think that's both true. One of the things I think is most compelling about what Dr. Prasad has to say is the extent to which there is a confidence in the health benefit of having twenty consecutive boosters for COVID that it, without any, any, cons- any uh, attendant pressure to, for the scientific community, for the pharmaceutical community, to have to run human trials and prove that there aren't health risks there, at the same time that there is a confidence that getting COVID 20 times in a row, as is likely to happen over the course of the lifetime, is going to be a, a health problem. Right. And what I think a lot of people want is for the scientific community to be made to prove its case. Since we are now out of this exigent time in the first months after COVID, where we're just struggling right. to get a vaccine, and we would have taken any vaccine and everybody was happy to have it. Now, it's not to me so much a, a question about whether or not COVID is over, but whether or not we have the space to have a little bit more scrutiny than there was time
0: for before. And can't we just recognize age difference? I can, I can accept With the current evidence that we have now, that if you're 85, that maybe getting a COVID booster every year is in fact the best idea for you. Like I get that, and you know, also at like at that you know range at that age of your life, you know, we're looking just how to extend your life. Like I see the argument because that is the population that's really affected by the disease, by the disease. But if you're going to say there's no way that's necessarily the same calculation for a 14-year-old uh, football player. Uh, like, like, isn't it obvious that there might be some difference in expectation and what makes sense? Um, and, and you hear that from people like Dr. Prasad, from us, from other people who talk about those things. I would like to hear that more from the administration as they continue to to talk about the benefit of, of the booster. Yeah, and I, and I do think this is political.
1: Like, Biden signaling that COVID is over means he is absolved of his responsibility to provide COVID support. So I know that you said on your radar, and I think that there is some truth to, you know, uh, COVID emergency powers being the hook for various kinds of interventions, whether or not. We agree on whether Biden really wants to cancel student debt is a whole other question. But I'm very, very concerned that there's not a middle ground that's being charted where you can both have a a critique of the pharmaceutical industry, be skeptical of some of the maximalist approaches to COVID. At the same time, I think that it should be very much in the public front of mind to continue to put pressure on the administration to deal with the people who are still suffering from the consequences of this. The fact that they're older is an excuse not to care. The fact that they are disproportionately immunocompromised is an excuse not to care. And, you know, the fact that you were not mandated to do things doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't be doing the best that we can to protect members Mm -hmm. of our own community. And I don't, I don't want there to be slippage where you can't hold both of those thoughts in your head at the same time. Mm
0: All right. Well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Oh, and check out that episode uh, if you're interested on your where, on YouTube, on wherever your podcast YouTube, Patreon, days. wherever podcasts are found. <laughs> All right. Stay with us. Here's an interesting story I wanted to discuss with you, Brianna, get your take. So Gmail is launching a pilot program to keep um, campaign emails in your inbox to mm. stop them from going to spam. The reason is that Republicans have been complaining for a while now. This has come up at some of the big tech hearings when they've had uh, you know, the big tech CEOs asking questions. It's come up. Uh, some Congress people have asked, particularly Republicans, why do my campaign ads <laughs> keep going to spam? You know, Why are you doing this? Why are you censoring us? Why are you silencing us? And it looks to be the case from this article, uh, from reporting that yes, the Republican Uh, campaign ads much more likely to go to spam.
1: 50% more likely.
0: 50% which is huge but here's the and you know don't ever yell at me don't accuse (laughs) me of being like shilling for Google or pro censorship or something but like Maybe, maybe the Republican ads are more spammy. Maybe they're more desperate in tone, like, send us money, like, suggesting some kind of uh, something approaching a swindle or a scam, like, mm-hmm. you got to send us money right now or, or you know, Antifa is going to be mm-hmm. marching to your families to turn them transgender or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You, you can imagine <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yeah. Also, secondly, spam is, in my view, the spam folder, is the correct place for all political <laughs> advertising. So if there's a censorship issue, if there's a bias issue, let's solve it by sending all of this junk to the spam filter. Like, I'm a political journalist, and I would love to consume, like, 95% <laughs> less political fundraising yeah. emails. If I want 95% less of it, I have to imagine the American people send that stuff to spam.
1: Yeah, the optics of the GOP saying we're going to make an issue out of getting more emails in the inbox of the American people is a little bit suspect. You know, I've often joked, like, any politician who wants to run on, like, uh, getting rid of Comcast and all of these service providers and ro- robo-dialing and all the things that make our life problematic in mm-hmm. small ways, they would win by a landslide. So this is a weird kind of optical thing. But I think substantively, there's a real case to be made here. If Google has the ability to treat all of the political emails equally and send them all to the spam folder, I think that, that would be a ready solution. Or like a
0: little, or like a, little uh, a separate tab, right? Right now I have the primary where, where the, mm-hmm. the quote-unquote important emails are Show up, even though you know ninety-eight percent of them are not important. And then the promotions one, where I don't know, I get ads. So you want
1: to like, have a dedicated political folder on the side? Yeah, and, I mean, then the the, and then the
0: weird notifications I don't need from Twitter, and then well, and the, then we put the political. The ones.
1: problem is that obviously Google is having trouble distinguishing or treating rather Republican and Democratic political emails the same way so even if you had another folder that wouldn't get rid of the problem if they're unable at this point to decide or identify what is in fact a a political email so is this a case of saying all political emails they have to generally uh, relax the the qualifications for what gets sent into spam folder and put fewer things in spam or is this one of those issues where republicans have to introspect a little bit and figure out how to simply do their messaging differently so that it doesn't provoke the spam filter
0: So, so this, uh, so they had to. Google had to ask the FEC. They wanted to make sure that, like, if we do this, are we doing something that violates some election law, some campaign finance law? Mm -hmm. And uh, and and so they had to. So the FEC put it to a. There was a comment period for this policy, essentially. The comments were just, like, overwhelming. They're like, no, <laughs> no. Why would you do this? Here's, a, here's some of them. Absolutely not. This is a terrible idea that would open the floodgates to even more spammy and abusive political advertisements. No.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <I'm... laughs> to say that I have a low opinion of this idea would be understatement <laughs> taken to an extreme. Please reject it. I will quit email altogether. <laughs> My mental health is at stake.
1: I mean, it really has gotten bad. It is, a, it, the, in the olden days, it was like the calls you would get on the landline during dinner that were the plague of the American household. Now it does feel like it's these kind of messages. I get more texts from people asking me to give to Raphael Warnock's campaign or like from Beto O'Rourke than I do from anybody that I know and love. I
0: know. (laughs) Texts and getting texts you don't want, that's an attack a call is a hate crime, <laughs> and uh, I should be directed to the proper federal authorities. I mean, I, I'm kidding, but look, we, we want to make people's lives less annoying. Technology is a good thing in a lot of ways, but you know, why give give people more ability to customize their own experience on social media, on email, on other places? Like, don't that, that is the big tech solution. Instead of having these difficult issues litigated either by the government or by very large private corporate actors, they just devolve it to the user for what kind of experience they want. And if you want to be flooded with really obnoxious, you know, apocalyptic rhetoric-style uh, campaign ads. No no one does. But if well, you do, go ahead. But in defense of the GOP,
1: isn't the argument that people are not able to make this choice and elect in or out because that choice is being made for them by well, Google? Well, so
0: that's the, that's the feature I would like to see Google pilot. Like, let's pilot that feature, which gives giving you, give people more control over their inbox.
1: So isn't that basically saying everything comes to the inbox and you just have to personally make the choice of what is and is not spam?
0: Well you can do that right now. You can label you can add the spam label to a bunch no, of No but
1: things. I'm saying that, that is the problem here, that GOP spam or GOP political <laughs> emails, more so than Democratic political emails, are being automatically right uh, flagged as spam. So like, how do you correct for that without, if if it's really about people making choices and like affirmatively identifying things as spam on their own, well, then you have to basically say, we're going to let more into the main inbox and let people have to have that 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 be their independent responsibility. Or you figure out a way to also grab more democratic emails and put them in spam. But it's not clear to your point about how the emails are structured that they can even do that. Yeah, If it really is a substantive difference between the two styles of emails. Which, you know, is this one of those things where it's like the marketplace of <laughs> Gmail? Republicans just have to figure out how to draft their emails differently so that they don't get caught up by the filter.
0: I once saw a cartoon talking about like, you know, 20 years ago, uh, getting a letter in the mail is like, ugh, oh, more crap in the mail. Ooh, but ooh, an, an email, how interesting. <laughs> now it's the opposite. It's like, ooh, a letter in the mail, Oh, another email. <laughs> Fair All enough. right, well, tomorrow on Rising, we're going to continue obviously following this migrant busing saga and much more. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content.
1: And those of you who like to listen on the go, like me, can listen in podcast format anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can also catch us on the Plex TV app. Take care. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye, everybody.